0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin week four of our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue discussing the Disciples' Prayer, part two on the program. So let's listen as we go back to the Bible.
1: I'm reading Matthew 6, 9 to 15. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, the Lord's Prayer, or as I have called it here, the Disciples' Prayer... Is a very simple prayer. It's simple because it has to be. If we are to learn how to pray, then we need a very simple approach, an approach we will not forget. And indeed it is. The prayer which begins by teaching us how to address God then follows with a series of six rather simple requests. If you can remember these six requests, you can learn how to pray well. If you don't know what to ask of God, ask of Him these six things. You know That may be surprising to some people. That's because we're constantly told that prayer is so much more than asking and receiving. Prayer includes worship and expressing to God our delight and adoration of Him. Prayer includes the Scripture, learning from God and expressing to Him our response to what He teaches us in His Word. It involves expressions of faith in which, after having heard the promises of God, responding in our expressions of trust. And prayer also includes consecration, that is, committing ourselves afresh to live for God's glory. But Jesus has told us that our Heavenly Father already knows that we're needy. And the Bible is filled with prayers for deliverance from our enemies, for healing, for safety when we feel in peril. God is never presented as a God who is unwilling to graciously bless His children. In a fashion, if you and I know how to present our requests to God rightly, our requests naturally encompass all the other aspects of praying as well. So don't be afraid. Ask. The problem with asking and receiving is that by nature, we don't know how to distinguish the difference between what we want and what we need, or those things that lead to godliness. And those things that might lead us to a self centered complacency devoid of God's Spirit. We're like the man who is put into a very upscale hotel for the first time in his life, realizing there's room service. But what can and should he ask for? What's included in room service and what's not? Now, I know prayer is not like room service. None of us would give our small children all they ask for. They might ask for ice cream and candy at every meal. They, they might ask to be able to stay up till midnight every night. They might ask to go to that friend's house when it's most inappropriate. A part of what loving parents do is, is to help shape their children's desire so that what they long for are the things that lead to life and not to death. And that's the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Jesus is teaching and mentoring us as we request things at the throne room of our Heavenly Father. Listen to your teacher, to Jesus, as he teaches you what it is that you should be asking for. So let's look at six requests every single child of God should be pleading for as they go to prayer. Here's our first request. Hallowed be your name. Now I know. That may not seem like a request, but this line can also be translated as, May your name be honored as holy. And that's a petition or a prayer request. Now, I've been in Christian circles for most of my life, and I've heard countless prayer requests, and I have rarely, perhaps never, heard this one in a prayer meeting, even though Jesus taught us to ask for it first. In short, we have almost completely ignored this as we make our prayer lists and pour out our hearts before God, and yet, it should be our first request. But what does that mean? Well, the word holy means separate, but it also refers to that which is pure and undefiled. And sometimes when I've tried to explain the word, I've said that we used to have what I called holy cutlery in our house. We never brought it out for regular meals. It was brought out for those special occasions or special guests or grand celebrations like family Christmas meals. It's very different from the ordinary, reserved only for the special, and the days unlike all others. But that's only part of the idea behind the word holy. Yes, God is not to be thought of as common or mundane. He is separate in that even his name is not to be mentioned in casual conversation. The use of his name is reserved for study and worship and and reverence. And when we pray for his name to be hallowed, we are pleading with God that he bring it about that every mention of his name in our lives, in our society, and in our world should be one in which a sense of sacredness pervades. But, of course, there is more to holiness than that. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he heard the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And in response, Isaiah was terrified, and he cried out that he was undone. See, the holiness of God speaks of his purity as opposed to the corruption of human sin. There is in holiness not a hint of anything that is not righteous and good. See, God is never morally compromised. You can't bargain with God to get him to meet you halfway on something that he's not comfortable with. Indeed, holiness gives us a picture of pure virtue. In him is all that is good and and lovely and praiseworthy. And so holiness contains both of these elements, both the idea of separateness from all other things and the idea of purity. See, to pray then that God's name would be honored as holy is to pray that his name would be that among all the children of Adam. It is to ask that there not be left but one vestige of that which offends God. But why should we pray for this? Is not this what God has intended to do anyway? See, in Numbers 14 verse 21, God says, But as truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. In other words, God has already determined that this earth would be filled with his glory, that every acre of creation would revere him, that the very stones would cry out, holy to the Lord. That's what he created the earth for, and Isaiah 43 verse 7 says it was created for his glory, or or the greatness, or the magnificence, or the splendor of his name. Creation followed by the creation of man, the fall, the outworking of history, and the placing of a cross at the centerpiece of history is a display of the glory of God. One day when Christ returns, all this will be accomplished not because of our prayers, but because of God's eternal decree. So if this is God's long-term purpose in creation, why are we pleading with him that such a thing should happen? What would change if we didn't pray this? And the answer must be that in one sense, nothing would change at all, for God will accomplish all his purposes. But the mere fact that God is determined to do something is no reason not to pray for it. See, when Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, he discovered that the exile would last 70 years. Well, rather than publishing a book on it, he sank to his knees and urgently prayed that God would do what he had promised. And when we learn to pray, that which God is determined to do, we enter into the plans of God ourselves. We unite our hearts to his heart. In praying this way, we center our desires to be in keeping with God's desires, And this kind of praying forms a template or a training ground in which we make all of our other requests. But please also notice what this request does. First, I want God's name to be regarded as holy in me, inviting me into radical worship of him. Then I want it regarded as holy in my city, inviting me to evangelism. I want it to be regarded as holy among the nations, the call to worldwide missions. I want his name to be lifted up everywhere, opening in me a new set of desires. This, according to Jesus, is the place where we need to learn how to pray. But remember, I said there are six requests. Let's now move to the second one, your kingdom come. You know, in some ways, we might be excused if we thought that the second request sounds very much like the first one. But there is a difference. Now we're not praying for an acknowledgement of the right attitude towards the name of God. We are now centering our request on the coming of Christ's kingdom. Now, just as before, we noticed that we are praying for that which God is already determined to do regardless of our prayers. But we do notice, for instance, that at the end of the book of Revelation, John prays, Even so, come Lord Jesus. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. Look at it this way. God is always and everywhere sovereign. That is, He is always ruling already. Even the evil things that are done in this world are only permitted if He in rulership allows them. But when the kingdom comes,
0: something different happens. How much of our prayers center around ourselves and not on God? Well, it's important to pray for our everyday needs and those around us. Dr. Neufeld reminds us in this passage that Jesus taught a different approach. For prayer ought to focus primarily on lifting up the name and glory of God in every aspect of our lives. It is to seek the coming of his kingdom both now and forevermore. When we come back, we'll discover more of the six requests that define the disciples' prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier this year, we created a brand new publication called The Truth and Life Magazine. Combining both our former publications, Life Matters and Bible Matters, this new resource is larger and offers a greater variety of content for everyone. Each issue features articles from Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and many other pastors and guest writers. Sent out six times a year, every other month, be sure to subscribe for our latest free resource – Truth and Life magazine. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: The kingdom of God is presented in the Bible. Is God finally and ultimately destroying all evil? That's why when Jesus arrived the first time, there was some confusion among the demons as to what his presence actually meant. On one occasion, a demon asked him, have you come to destroy us before our time? Well, that's because all the signs of the end times, that is the pouring out of God's spirit and the healing of diseases and the casting out of demons and even the raising of the dead had already begun. But of course, so much evil remained, and what was this remarkable day when clearly the kingdom was inaugurated on earth, and yet it was not finally consummated. And so we live in this day when the gospel, or the the good news of Jesus reconciling the world to himself, has already begun among us. And yet we await a day in which, as the hymn writer has written of, his kingdom spread from shore to shore, till moon shall wax and wane no more. To pray that God's kingdom would come is to plead with God for the day in which he rules all things in such a way that all evil is defeated and Christ is proclaimed as king and God without any resistance. Now, the third prayer request is an extension of the second one. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when we say your will be done, we're already committing ourselves to submission to his will. We're moving from the desire for God to rule in Christ over all things to personalizing that, making it profoundly intimate. It's our act of surrender in which the request that all things would surrender to God. See, you and I need to ask that we might find his will to be our delight, our our ultimate pleasure. We need to ask for a heart that would revel in the perfect will of God and would immediately respond to all of God's commands with an eager willingness. Now, please notice that the first three requests are entirely God-directed. They're a crying out, a pleading with God that the day of rebellion to His purposes, both in our lives and in our world, would end. It's asking God to give us a hunger and a thirst for Him, for the living God. It is to do what the psalmist does in Psalm 42, verse 1, when he writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You and I need to enter God's throne room, pleading for a transformed heart that honors, adores, and loves God above all other things. For while every child of God feels this, yet we also feel still the the tug of our own sin. The first three requests are that we would find our moment-by-moment moment delight and joy in God, and it is a request that it would not only be so in me, but in every aspect of creation. Oh, Lord, my God, may everything breathe out worship and praise to you. That's the first half of this prayer. The second half is meant to follow from the first. Having pled with God for his glory, only then will we ever get the second half straight. The last three requests moves us to the everyday concerns that we face. But please notice the order. Jesus wants us to first concern ourselves with him, and then having done that, we begin to concern ourselves with the everyday things that we all face. They include you know, Uncle Frank's cancer and Jill's broken-down old car. Don't you see what's wrong with our prayers? Jesus is teaching us to, to start with God. This is not room service. This is not, oh God, I have need of goods and services, healing for my arthritis and cancer, need for a job, pray that my wife returns, that my kids won't be rebellious any longer. See how we have dishonored God by assuming that he is our heavenly bellhop rather than praying that our eyes would be opened to see my need for a hedonistic delight in reveling in his glory. How our prayer life has made us seem like spoiled children hoping for rich dad to pay our bills rather than asking our glorious dad to make us men and women of the Spirit. Would you make a commitment today to change your prayer life? Would you let Jesus teach you? And that doesn't mean that the everyday things don't matter. For Jesus wants us to pray about those things as well. And so the fourth prayer request is this. Give us this day our daily bread. See, our daily bread refers to all the things that we need. It's daily because these are daily needs. Every day arrives and the needs are before us again. This speaks of God's ongoing, regular intervention into our lives. God, provide for me this day. Then the fifth request. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There are two parts around this request. Please notice that in training us to pray, Jesus trains us to daily go to God and ask for forgiveness. Again, as before, we might ask, why should I ask for that which is guaranteed to me in the cross? And the answer is the same as before. God wants us to ask for that which he has promised us. In terms of forgiveness, the answer is that our daily remembering of our sins and our coming to Him for grace reminds us that the kind of relationship I have with God is one of grace. He who is holy has found a way to remain holy and to forgive deserving objects of wrath and to make them into objects of His mercy. A daily discipline of recounting my sins and my need for His grace changes the way I view life. Do you know what a discipline of daily confession of sins does? It overwhelms us with two things. The first is our sins. You have no idea how often you sin until you begin to pay attention. And secondly, then be overwhelmed with God's endless, boundless, unceasing mercy to you. Be snowed under by a revelation of how boundless is his kindness to you. Confession of sins will do that for you. But the second half of this request often alarms us. We should ask God to forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. Now, because this is such a large subject matter, and, and because Jesus gives an explanation of this matter in verses 14 to 15, I'm going to spend some time in detail discussing that matter tomorrow. So you're going to want to tune in to that. But this fifth prayer request, the coming to God and asking for forgiveness, leads us to one more prayer request. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In essence, this last request invites us to ask for daily strength to overcome evil as we face it, either in the weaknesses in our flesh or in the temptations of the world or the assaults of Satan. In essence, the final request contains in it a prayer of consecration. Back in the 1600s, the German poet Paul Gerhard penned what has now become the very famous hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. In the third verse, as Gerhard is overwhelmed with the sufferings of Christ on his behalf, he writes what I think perfectly reflects Jesus' words in this prayer. He says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never, Outlive my love for Thee. Gerhard knew how weak his flesh was, how prone he was to sinning, and how easily he would allow a passionless religious expression of Christianity to drown out a passionate zeal for Christ. How quickly sins dominate us, how quickly they overrun our own will. But why should we pray that God should not lead us into temptation? After all, he's not going to anyway. You know, the Greek word for temptation can also mean testing. According to James 1 verse 3, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. But that's not how it is meant here. Basically, here it means, do not allow me to fall into the kind of trial that results in my fall. Preserve me by guarding me from those trials that I'm too weak to bear. And with those simple six requests, Jesus gives us the basis for effective praying. Effective praying hungers after God. Effective praying acknowledges our own weakness and calls upon God for grace. You know, Join me tomorrow as we learn how effective praying keeps us from falling into the trap of self-righteousness and arrogance. But I encourage all of my listeners to do this. Go back over the, the Lord's Prayer and relearn this wonderful prayer and begin to apply this to your own prayer life. And watch how your prayer life is being transformed. Heavenly Father... What a joy it is to pray. What a joy it is to know that you welcome us in your presence. What a joy it is to know that you teach us how to pray.
0: A great lesson today on the basics of what our prayers should look like as Jesus himself taught. We must begin with a God-centered orientation, focusing our attitude on him before we ask for our daily needs and concerns. I hope that this message has been insightful and perhaps inspires you to begin to change your own prayer life. Let's reorient our prayers to be about the things that matter to God the most, and from that to experience a deeper communion with Him. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues the greatest sermon ever preached, looking at spiritual disciplines and pride, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's always been our mission to engage and equip believers to know God's Word more deeply so that they can grow in their faith every day. Not only that, but we believe the Bible has something meaningful to say for everyone no matter what their spiritual background is. In Dr. Neufeld's words, the only true preaching is that which seeks only to communicate well and accurately that which God has spoken. I know that the word of God is living and powerful. Do you believe that's true? As we seek to help more and more Canadians across the country discover the truth and power of the scriptures, would you consider partnering with us today? When you give to this ministry, it allows many others like yourself to have the opportunity to hear and be changed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information, go to backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.